Hey everybody, welcome to We've Got Ward, a doof media podcast series where we expertly dissect and discuss Ward, Wabo's return to the world of parahumans. My name is Matt Freeman, and my life motto is trust but verify. And I'm Scott Daly, and that's really stupid, Matt. If you have to verify, then it means you don't really trust. No, no, because like, I trust you, but I just want to make sure. Oh, okay. Let me let me just trust you not to eat my bag of M&Ms while I'm in the bathroom, but I'm going to count my M&Ms when I get back because I trust you so much that I'm going to individually count my large bag of M&Ms. It's going to take hours of my life. I made a whole spreadsheet because I trust you. <sighs> Can we just do the show now? Fine. This is the weekly podcast where Matt and I eagerly dive into Wild Bo's world of gratuitous spike usage, badass gravity traps, and alien-based death powers as we analyze and interpret this ongoing web serial. This week, Infrared continues with chapters 19.6 and 19.D. Victoria gets needled by both Chris and Ophion as she continues to struggle against the Titan Horde. Rain finally reveals the message he sent Fortuna, and also the theme of this book. It's about acceptance. Victoria accepts that she's probably not going to be able to punch this problem to death and tries to find a way back into the dream world. Then we switch over to our favorite solely reforming bigot Moonsong as she has moments of acceptance with her parents, her old teammates, and finally the Capricorn brothers. Everything, everything's going to be fine, y'all. Matt, what did you think of these two chapters? As usual, and as you just sort of outlined, there's a lot in here. Uh, with the Victoria mm-hmm. stuff, it's, it's extremely intense. We basically see her pushed past a point, you know, of kind of horror that we haven't seen in this entire story which is oh painful painful to watch Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um and then we get in the head of moonsong which is really interesting i think it sort of continues what is kind of a sort of a trend of being in the heads of people who we may not have the best opinion of gill is sort of off of that trend obviously sure sure um, yeah i mean i had a bad opinion of his name (laughs) gill come on no, I agree. These are, I mean, these are some good chapters. I, I, the Moonsong interlude was not something I was expecting, um, but I, I very much enjoyed it. I think there's some fantastic action writing here, some of the most stressful writing in the entire book. Um, and I really like Rain's message, and I really want to really dive into and talk about what Rain reveals to the group and what that means for this entire story. Me too. Me too. All right. So let's do it. Yeah. Um, just a reminder, everyone, the all packed up. 24-hour culmination of the Deep Impact show. Uh, the live stream is on March 6th. It's going to be on YouTube. There's going to be links and stuff. We're, we're, we no, still it's going to be on Twitch. It's going to be on Twitch. I said, that's what I said. <laughs> I, I didn't get the memo. Um, we decided Twitch has like the bits system that people might want to donate okay. through. And so everyone's bits as well as their donations will go to the charity. Um, so we decided that was better. Sorry, and that's, I should have told you that. That's my fault. That's twitch.tv slash doof media. media. That's what I thought. Yep. All right. And then also uh, Kingslingers is ongoing. We're on episode, what, three now, three. right? Yep. Yeah. We are finishing up the first book this week, and then uh, we're going to do a little overarching summary episode and then dive right into the second book. I promise we'll stop announcing the show at the st- 
at the top of the show, but it's new and clearly you all haven't listened to it. I know you haven't listened to it. You, the one I'm talking to right now, you know who you are. I know because I can see download numbers. That's right. You, that's, you. that's right, Brandon. <laughs> you heard me. Okay. Probably, you know, you know who hasn't listened? Definitely. Gil. Who? Definitely Gil. Yeah. It's like fucking guy. Gil. All right. I hope none of our listeners are named Gil. And they're just like, <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> All right, Scott, 19.6. All right, let's do it. Our Victoria chapter. We open up with Victoria comparing the sound of the spreading cracks to the sounds that Swan Song and Damsel's power produced, which at first I kind of glossed over, but then I was like, maybe there's something to this. Like maybe it operates by the same principles or, or maybe it's a more, you know, more to tell us where Victoria's head is. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, to go a little chocolate with it, it could be the book just prepping us for some important shenanigans that are going to require one or both of the Stillen sisters. Right. I mean, it could be that like I have, the book has reintroduced the concept of swan song to us in uh, last chapter, I believe it was, or two chapters ago with the, the with the rain message. Um, and then we kind of brought it up last chapter as well. Yeah. It's kind so. of making us feel like everybody's here. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I think you're right that it could just be literally just, a, a hint of, of Victoria's mindset, like Rain talked about how Swansong was here last chapter and now she's got her on the brain. Um, or, you know, it could just be a normal thing where, hey, this cracking noise sounds weird. Let's give the readers something to compare it to that they know what sounds like because they've heard that before. Yes. You know, it could, it could be that. <laughs> or or at least we've spent a lot of energy imagining how that sounds. Sure. sure. Yes. Um, so I love how the Ashen Titan is described as being quieter than silent. I love that language that the, the ash just creates this muted pall around her. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love like I think that's when you pulled that out, like seeing the two comparisons of sounds back to back, it, it struck this really interesting contrast with me where you have this these this slow sound of these cracks spreading and this kind of tearing noise, um, this Ashley power noise. And then you have almost this muted silence. Um, as the Ashen Titan moves through a place. And I love that kind of contrast and it makes it even more haunting. Um, yeah, it's good writing, right? Because I, I don't know, it's something I don't, I, I, I do visualize things quite often, although not like a hundred percent of the time, but I sure. don't, I don't, I don't have like a, like a soundtrack to what this battle sounds like. So unless Wildbo's telling me exactly what I should be hearing, I'm not really hearing anything. So, um, I think it's, it's fun to, to, to point things like that out. Yeah, I mean, one thing I think we see not regularly, but often we see, especially because this is like a serialized book, the chapters always have to kind of reestablish themselves in the environment. Like you're not most people aren't going to be reading this like one after another. Right. They're just going to be sitting down on a Tuesday and reading this chapter and they might have forgotten. What is this noise in the back room? Mm -hmm. Where are they? And so each chapter has to kind of do this brief couple paragraph Let's orient you in the world. Um, and I think that's kind of what this sound stuff is doing. I think you're right. I love the little detail, though, about the Ashen Titan that as she moves beyond areas, the places and the buildings that were turned into ash, like try to reconstitute themselves. But because ash has fallen through the cracks, it, some of that material is missing. And so the buildings come back and then just like fall over or just don't build correctly at all. I like to, to, to read way too much into this. It's kind of like a perfect metaphor for humanity post gold morning, right? The idea that everything collapsed and we tried to build everything back the way it was before, but 
we lost something in that moment. Something was lost in the end of the the world. And we attempted to just build it all back up, but there were pieces of it missing, structure missing, and it all just fell apart again. I really like that idea. Like her power is moving through an area and it's like, all right, that building's fine. And yeah. the building is clearly <laughs> on its side. Yeah. Yeah. It's fun. It's 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 just fun, fun uh, imagery that I think ties into the general feeling of this, of this chapter and this book. Yeah, I agree completely. I mean, and also, I mean, it, it feels... It feels meaningful because because it could have just been that as the ashen titan moves over the landscape, it just leaves an ashen trail behind it, right? Just, yeah, just yeah. like a, a stripe, a stripe of ashified terrain behind it, right? But instead, its power reconstitutes the buildings as it moves, which which is an ex, it's like an extra step, right? It's, it's yeah, yeah. It seems it seems harder to do that, um, and 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 the consequence being that it does it imperfectly, which is interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. So, yeah, the fighting is still intense, though. Victoria is surrounded by Titans, and we get word of new Titans appearing as the chapter continues. Chris uh, then calls Victoria to come down with a request to give the Mathers giant an injection of something or other. And here Vicky is combative and suspicious towards him, which really annoys Chris enough that he actually just kind of refuses to give it to her and then asks (laughs) Veta to do it. Yeah, <laughs> I really like the back and forth between Vicky and, and Chris in this chapter. And I think this early moment of it really kind of lays the seeds for what's going to happen in their big confrontation at the end of this chapter. Um, I, like, I, like, I also like how both both this conversation and the later conversation deal with a needle, right? Like Chris is offering her a needle to stick with someone else. Later in the chapter, Chris is offering a needle to stick with herself. And um, and they both deal with this concept of trust and here they bicker with details about what this means about trust about all this stuff but later it's less bickering and more direct confrontation that ends and victoria extending a measure of trust enough to stick this needle in her leg yeah right i i love i love the needle motif right i mean we've had a, yeah. we've actually had a lot of needle motifs in this story the whole uh uh um uh what's that team called the withdrawal and and all them like the, the, oh the major malfunctions major malfunctions yeah there was a lot of needle yeah. motifs with them and it's kind of cool to see it coming back here and i think it's been off and on throughout the story actually it'll be fun to I, I i don't i can't do it off the top of my head but it'll be fun to look at all of the needles in the entire story actually yeah i think it would can't forget our our hypodermic needle cape Yep. This is the most terrifying thing I've ever seen. Oh, yes. my God. Oh, my God. Ugh, I had nightmares about that. Yeah. And and this is where we get the moment we joked about in the intro of the show where Victoria says, trust but verify. And Chris is like, that's stupid, which I agree. Um, I don't <laughs> think I quite agree with his conclusion on it, but his thing is it's verify then trust, except you can never really verify 100%. When you try, you end up being someone's victim, which is just turning the like just twisting the knife. It's it's brutal. Um, yeah, like, and, and to continue our needling metaphor, like he is needling her, he's like trying to piss her off here. And I'm still not entirely sure what to make of it because like, I I am acknowledging my, my impossibility of being impartial because I am so invested in the potential of a, a Chris like heel turn that I feel like I sometimes read too much into certain scenes because I want it so much. It does certainly seem like he's just, just generally being a dick here while also, legitimately attempting to help in some ways. Yeah. I mean, I think he wants her to hate him, but he also has this core of empathy and 
it there's there's definitely kind of two sides to him and we want one particular side to win i think yeah i totally agree yeah um so the issue here is that victoria feels like she can't trust chris after what he's done for obvious reasons so she hesitates and that makes sense but sveta kind of intervenes in this sveta being basically the support character throughout both of these chapters here she's supporting victoria and like trying to prevent escalation later she's playing support to tristan and i think it's funny that like she has no proclivity against sticking this needle that she doesn't know what it into this giant not knowing what it's going to do yeah i think that there is personal um baggage between between victoria and 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 chris in a way that there is not between sveta and chris i mean she obviously feels betrayed by him but but for, for 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 complicated reasons I mean, for many reasons, it's, it's, it is, it's threaded throughout this whole story. Um, she, it's, it's more than just like what he did to her specifically. I think that the interesting thing that the story is doing with these two characters is that it's not just that he betrayed her, right? It's, it's like they are espousing two sides of a philosophical argument. Yeah. And and that's what's happening in this conversation. Like the trust, like when he throws in a jab where he says like trust, but verify is, is nonsense. If you, if you trust someone you shouldn't trust, you end up being someone's victim. That's him just trying to push her buttons and try to kind of win, win the argument. And what is the argument? Hard to pin down exactly, but yeah, it's, it's really just whatever is, is opposite of her, right? Basically. Yeah. But I, I mean, I think it's, it's, it's this this thesis of don't trust anyone because he says basically Chris's whole thing is don't don't trust anyone. You're better off by yourself. Anyone in your life is just going to hurt you. And so I'm going to push everyone away from me. And Chris and, and Vicky takes the opposite of that. And so all of their conversations are actually about that argument. Mm-hmm. Um, just kind of indirectly and snarkily. Yeah. And, and I think I think you're right that I think Sveta probably sees Chris as not a traitor, but has betrayed them in some ways. But I do agree that like, it's much more personal for Victoria. Mm -hmm. I don't think she's kept all of that to herself, right? What she found out about his part and everything. I don't think she's told anyone that. Yeah. Not that we know of you, right? Yeah. I don't think so. Yeah. So nearby the nursery giant and the Ophion Titan are in a kind of horrible stalemate with her feeding an endless deluge of flesh and him trying to turn it into monsters. Cool. Victoria decides to go attack the the bugs that he's generating. Interestingly, uh, as she does this, it seems like the motive for her attack is mainly to figure out how her power changed. Yeah. Uh, She's not really trying to do combat so much as test her power. She also uses her aura and finds that it draws the attention of the bugs, uh, but they're bugs, so it's not really obvious why exactly. We see see scholar Victoria come out very briefly, right, where she's like, well, they're reacting— and then then they're turning to face me, but it could be any literally any emotion could make something react and then want to attack the thing that caused the, the thing. Right. Yeah. So she, and, and she's like, and they're like insect monsters. So it might not necessarily be what a human would do. Like she she ponders what this means for a brief moment, but then can't come to any conclusion and just kind of moves on. Right. All we know now is that it gets the bugs attention and that when she moves, when she uses it on people, it makes them kind of freeze for a second. Yeah. Yeah. Um, It's really interesting. I think there's been some kind of speculation around if her aura has something to do with the behavior of the Titans as well. Um, And I don't think we've seen anything that confirms nor denies that yet. 
but it certainly seems like the book is keeping this very close to the chest. So, um, this is good depth. I mean, you called it Chekhov's aura a few weeks ago, and I think you're absolutely right. This is going to be important in some way. Yeah. Um, I, how important and in what way? Can't wait to find out. Sure. So Vicky uh, discovers that she can basically rip these creatures to shreds by taking a gentle and subtle approach, grabbing <laughs> and then rending instead of punching. And then after laying waste to some bugs, she tries to dig a hole in Ophion's bulk. So I really love this because at this moment where she's like testing her new force field, seeing what its limitations are, she realizes that if she punches things really hard, it just is going to cause her field to pop and then she'll be defenseless. Right. So she thinks back to her sparring incidents with her family and, and how she had to be a little more gentle then. And from that, she moves to ripping and tearing things apart. And I just like love that inherent contradiction with like this, like go soft, go a little bit more gentle, which ends with very effective and efficient, just rending and tearing and destroying of these insect monsters. It's just like, it's, it's brutal and efficient. And I just love that it starts with, I remember, remember when you were sparing, sparring with your family, <laughs> that's where it ends. The, the language is so evocative where like the descriptions aren't actually super specific, but I still have no trouble rendering a extremely graphic movie of, her like shredding her way through these things almost almost like dancing between them as she goes yeah because she's being so gentle it's uh it's it's pretty cool it is really cool is there something to make of the fact that she's made the decision to go after this titan specifically um the one that could accidentally sting her with one of its barbs (laughs) and turn her into a monster so later on after she gets into a horrible situation, she thinks to herself, like, why did I do this? Yeah. W- what what came over me? And I think um, that's basically the same question. Like, why the hell does she do this in the first place? Because, yes, okay, the, the ostensible reason is, oh, I need to test out my force field. But then she just, like, plunges into an extremely dangerous position for no real reason it's it's like she kind of loses the plot for a second like she loses yeah. track of like the risks and 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 the the threats and the objectives like she doesn't really seem to be having any like she's not acting based on any kind of objective when she starts digging into a fine side yeah. she's just kind of doing it well one of the things we we see is that the smell of the crap coming out of the stingers of the bugs is reminding her of crawler's acid, which is sending her down uh, a spiral of all the way back to Amy and specifically the memory of Amy that we had play out uh, a few chapters ago. Um, so it, it seems like, yeah, she just like lashes out at the biggest thing there. And I think there's something poetic to the idea of her lashing out and trying to rip apart the thing that is generating monsters. Um, yeah, it seems just very fitting. I I agree. I, agree. I mean, I think that I don't think it's a big mystery. I think that she loses control of herself emotionally due to the circumstance, and that's why yeah. she goes after him. Yeah, yeah. So, but as she's doing this, she gets cocky. She overextends. Her force field goes down, and then when she tries to fall back and retreat, she is rapidly hemmed in by many, many, many Ophian spines trying to kill and or trap her. Uh, thus begins the most hair raising sequence in the book. Yeah, it's just spectacularly written, too. Like, I'm on record as, like, being the guy that's like, I don't come to this book for the action. The action's good, usually. I'm here for the character stuff. But, man, 
this worked. This worked on me. The way it escalates and just keeps getting worse and worse as the needles tighten in on her and tighten in on her. And like we said, if there's a theme of this chapter, it's Victoria and needles. And she's just getting just hit by these spikes. So many spikes. And the text is just deliciously awful here. Like, it's just so good. All the while she's dodging and weaving and sometimes like literally scraping by these spikes, they just keep penetrating Ophion at the same time. And we get this noise, this wet sucking sounds, slapping sounds, fluids dripping audible where they splashed onto spikes below. It's this disgusting, gross, tactile feeling like that that is not even related to her dodging of the needles. It's just the ones that get that get past her on their way to the Titan smash into him and this disgusting noise. Uh, it's so tactile. I love it. Yeah. I mean, and, and also once again, we have sound being pr- prominently featured here. Um, yeah, I, yeah. I don't know if this is unique in this chapter or if we are just paying more attention to it for some strange reason. But yeah, the, 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 all the gross sounds that are surrounding her are really emphasized. Yeah. Yeah. So Weibo really like, I think fakes us out here a few times because like, okay, Victoria will smash into something or scrape against something or get poked by something. And each of these times, it's not immediately clear whether or not she's been punctured by one of these mutation spines or not. Yeah. Uh, I I was actually wondering if it was a three beat, but it's a little bit too hectic to really nail down, I think. Yeah, I mean, I think she's just smashing into so many things. It's hard to like count. But I agree. The first time I read this, I thought she was punctured before she actually was. Yeah. And it was only like on, on a, a little bit closer read that I was like, oh, no, that just scraped by or no, she just ran in to the, to the, the broad side. side. Yeah. yeah. Um, and it, I, I love how the text describes it as like it, it's uh, a forest, a fucking bad dream of a forest where I fell rather than ran and I couldn't see the trees or branches I ran into. It's just like everywhere she goes, she's just bumping into these things. Like she's hitting everything. The second her force field comes up, it goes down again. Um, that delicious moment where like it comes up halfway in through the spike stabbing her and then just immediately pops again. Like it's just so like, I don't think she's ever quite felt this defenseless in combat before. Yeah. Right. I mean, it gets worse from here. Like she gets, like she's kind of like pitiful and scared here. This is very unusual for Victoria. Yeah, like she, yeah. like like you pointed out, this is sort of the worst enemy for her to be fighting, and she has put herself in a position where she is trapped and uh and and running scared, and she's thinking like like her her stream of consciousness here is unhinged practically. Like like I'll just I'll just kind of pull out some samples. Fucking fuck that. Logic your way past emotion. Emote your way through logic. And then she thinks, did I even make a difference in all this? Which is yeah. a very kind of defeatist thought, you know? Sure. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this chapter, which I think the the primary thesis of Ward is stated explicitly by one of our characters. So it, it doesn't surprise me that we see in this moment just about like every single Victoria coping mechanism attempted all at once. Um, like she's in a forest of Amy's basically, right? Where one touch turns her into the monster she's been running from since the beginning of the story. That's that's her situation right now. And it's horrible. It's awful. And I love I love that concept of logic, your way, logicing your way past emotion and then emoting your way through logic. And it just being the cycle, the cycle of just get to the next one. Just uh, when when logic starts to fail you, when you can't rationalize anything, when when the logic of that moment says, oh, I'm fucked, uh, just use emotion to get through it. And then when the emotion becomes overwhelming, grab onto logic again and just keep like inching your way forward th- through that. And it's not, it's not like a sustainable thing. Like there's, 
there's only so long you can do that before your body's just like or your mind is just like I can't do this anymore. Like this is this is destroying me, but it's getting her through these brief moments and that's the only thing that's getting her through these brief moments. Right. I mean, she's she's essentially panicking. I think yeah. this is one of the few times when you can use that word to describe Victoria's state of mind and the choice in that situation is either kind of uh freeze up or act and the way she's getting herself to act is kind of just turning this crank where she's kind of not letting her mind hold still in any particular posture for too long i think it's it's uh it's realistic too yeah i like that a lot because like how do you how do you show panic Mm -hmm. via words right like you just say they started panicking right (laughs) but but this is the text like attempting to like frame what panic looks like in the the thought process of a person who is very introspective like victoria she's like very aware of her state of mind and she's she studies it a lot and this is what panic looks like um yeah and she's like grasping for anything she can to try to to push through it yeah i love it she's doing like judo on her own emotions here yeah yeah but of course after a couple of fake outs she does get stabbed in the foot by one of the mutation spines and she starts mutating and understandably freaking the fuck out Mm-hmm. I just want to talk about why this scene is so affecting. I, I think I think I saw a lot of people on the, the Duve discord talking about how much this part of the book got to them. Um, and I, I just I mean, it's the writing of the passages, right? It's how it's written. It's the words used here. And I the moment where she finally gets stabbed is, I think, the just culmination of that. It starts with I screamed pain jumped from the penetration point at my knee and my foot from the penetration point from my knee to my gut, making my mouth yawn open, my entire body wanting to throw up on reflex and yet too paralyzed to follow through. Freeze frame trapped in the first moment of the hurling process. I could feel it slide in, slowly, displacing fluids that came out in gulpy spurts, and I could feel it twisting everything it touched, flesh mixed up like it was a liquid in a blender, not something solid, swelling, flowing out of the wound. That is like so, like the attention to detail there, I think, is just so affecting. Like you could like, it's not just, it's not just Victoria got stabbed by one of them and she started freaking out because that's her worst nightmare. It's like, I could feel it. I can feel the, the liquid enter my body. I could feel it change and start to mutate. I feel every bit of it. Oh, ugh. I love it. Right. It's so it's, it doesn't flinch away from describing the feeling at all despite the fact that she does flinch away from looking at it it's yeah, yeah. It gives us enough of a i mean i think this is a good thing that weblo does often which i just think is a good writing technique where we don't know what it looks like we don't really get a description of it but we know exactly how it feels and what it's like and how gross it is and that's kind yeah. of all you need sure like you don't yeah. need a picture you just need to know oh this is horrible yeah you don't need to see that shark just yeah. know that shark's there and it's freaking you out. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I, I love here in this moment too. her, her cycle breaks down her, her cycle of logic and emotion. And she's like telling herself, keep the cycle going. Logic your way through emotion. Emote. I screamed, pushing out with my aura. Emote through the emotion. Emote through the emotion. Like it stops like being a, a, a flip flop between the two. Just emote through emotion. Yeah. Like, oh, well, that's not going to work. She's going to scream her way out of her panic. Which, interestingly enough, kind of works because when she uses her aura here, it may or may not have actually saved her. 
So yeah, well, that's I mean, that's one of these open questions, right? Like we see her scream pushing out with her aura, and then the next thing that happens is someone or something hits the Titan. Um, and so that's our kind of central mystery here where I think a lot of people were questioning the last time she did this. I think we attributed it to Chris saving her, but he specifically denied it. And we were like, yeah, sure, buddy. I mean, maybe he really had no, maybe he's telling the truth and really had nothing to do with it. And it just happens <laughs> to be some weird stuff with her aura. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, my guess would be that sh- that it it touched someone. It, it maybe touched one of the giants and caused the giant to sort of come to her aid, intentionally or not. Yeah, I'm not could sure. Be. So she feels her consciousness slip as she tries to pull the spike out, and eventually she she succeeds in doing so. But she's unsure of whether this is her doing or the fragile ones. She then flies away and appropriately wonders <laughs> what she was thinking, diving into claw at Ophion. I love when you just like drop little little <laughs> adverbs like appropriately in there it's just perfect that's just like just little matt opinion sneaking into the summary you're just editorializing um, yeah 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 i mean i think this is really interesting right because she basically is like pleading with her shard with fragile one take over take drive drive this car i can't do it right now and she blacks out and she's not sure right she thinks i mean i screamed and that was definitely a me scream so that was me but maybe this was it and I think she kind of scholars her way to like if people were just able to talk to their shards like this, like other people would have definitely done it before. Um, yeah. But we do know that her link with her shard is seemingly unique in several ways. So we don't know here. We really don't know. Right. Yeah. I mean, I I think I think uh, it's 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 both, you know. But. Yeah. I mean, it's always both. Right. It's right. always both. Yeah. yeah. Like you said, the thing I love most about this is we never get to see what the like looks like. Uh, Victoria cannot look at it. And even in the moments where she like, like gives fleeting glimpses to it, she can't describe it. Like the text will will not allow her. We're in her mind's eye. And it's just like, nope, I'm not putting that down on paper. You can't make me. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, what's funny is I I kind of do wonder what everyone thinks of it, like what what everyone imagines, because I just imagine it being like enormous and bulbous and disgusting. But yeah, yeah. um, for she all we know, it weighs more than her, right? Yeah, but like, what if it looks like the wretch, though? Like, sure, like we sure. get. I mean, I mean, it, the text doesn't say that it doesn't, right? Like that would be that would be creepy and interesting, at least. Yeah, just a thought. Um, yeah, so Victoria crash lands by Chris and asks for rain, uh, so she can get him to cut her leg off because that's where her head is at right now. Yeah, Chris instead offers her a cure. He hands out his syringe. And this this kind of just leads to them having basically their showdown. Yep. He, he tells her all the horrible things that she doesn't already know about, like the piece of Victoria that Amy keeps with her. Victoria takes the syringe eventually while projecting enough baleful energy that even Chris is wor- worried what she might do. <laughs> yeah. So I want to I want to talk about this this encounter for a little bit. I think this is one of the most important parts of the chapter since. Chris has returned to the forefront of the book. Victoria has been wanting to say thing these things to him, right? Like, I think it, I can't, it's been so long, like a whole week. I think it was last chapter where she's like, Oh, I really want to confront him about these things. I really want to, but I just can't bring myself to. And finally in this moment where she's like mentally and physically exhausted and, and freaking out about her leg, she finally just lets it all loose and she finally confronts him about it. And he's not like, sorry. Like he doesn't say, yeah, I'm sorry. But he is honest, right? He admits it. 
he totally admits it. He admit he says why he did it. He admits that she didn't deserve what was done to her. She she didn't deserve any of this. And then the, so the question becomes, well, why is Chris? Why is this this asshole conflicted person admitting this to her at this time? Why is he doing it? And Victoria thinks he said it to hurt me, to push me. And I think she's kind of right there because we see after this moment that it works like the end of this conflict. The end of this confrontation is she accepts healing from powers, which is something I never thought she would be able to bring herself to do. But she does. And I mean, maybe maybe it's just Chris being honest about something is enough to establish just a little bit of trust in her mind there. Um, But also, I think it's just like motivation to keep on living because you learned this thing about Amy, right? Like we learn that she has this piece of Victoria, a piece with a living heartbeat and everything. And maybe that's just enough motivation to keep going. Like because she ends this with if she still has it when I see her next, I'll kill her. If not, then I don't know. Yeah, right. It's because Victoria doesn't really show us exactly why she decides to accept this syringe because it is a very Mm -hmm. big step for her to do this i I agree like i i thought that we would not see this in this story and and what it and and i don't even know if i would say necessarily that it shows like growth specifically that she's decided to do this because like you said maybe she's just accepting it so that she can be healthy enough to murder her sister yeah to Um, use that leg to kick hamey's head off (laughs) yeah um but also it just kind of shows how complex her feelings toward Chris actually are. Like, yeah. I, I think there's a, I think that maybe she sees a lot of herself in Chris potentially because hmm. like, like I don't see any other reason why she would keep giving him so many chances. Like she thinks later she almost snaps at Kenzie and she, and then she's like, well, I, I can't snap at Kenzie after I just gave Chris yet another chance he didn't deserve basically. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, well, why are you giving him so many chances? Like you really, you're and and I mean I honestly I think it's similar to the reason why we're giving him so many chances like yeah like we just want him to pull through we kind of desperately want him to pull through for because like I don't know because we just want to see this guy survive his demons and 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 Victoria is also somebody else who has a lot of demons and who has struggled with having you know monstrosity in her past which is basically Chris's whole issue mm-hmm. and and she she wants to see him she wants to believe in him and so it's yeah. it's 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 almost like in, in their in their little philosophical um gambit that they have going on that their their philosophical debate through actions it's like a, a it's like a, a a good move for her to accept this from him and actually trust him right because she's like all right i will i will trust you and i'll show that trust doesn't always fuck you over Sure. And she takes the shot and it doesn't fuck her over and she's right. And yeah, yeah, I like that. I like that because it also means that like this feeling of that. I want to feel hopeful and compassionate towards Chris is like not just coming entirely from my brain. I, I agree that we we are picking this up because on some level, Victoria is as well. Yeah. I love that moment where she's like, all right, this is your final chance. And he's like, how the fuck? Do I still we're just now getting to my final chance like he's shocked at that. And I think I think I think you're absolutely right that we kind of are, too, that like but but we're remain like maybe overly optimistic. Yeah, um, I I think 
I, I don't know. Maybe I'm anchored too much on this idea that she sees herself in him, but, but yeah, the, the idea, like he's, he, he thinks he's been pushing her away all this time and he's actually annoyed to realize that she is still sort of, um, offering her hand to him. He's like, I yeah. thought I took care of this. Right. Uh, which, well, like, I mean, yeah. and I don't know if I'm reading too much into it either, but it feels like, yeah, he's, it's like, it's, he's trying so hard to be a monster, not just physically, but like in character as well. He wants people to hate him. Maybe Victoria more than anyone. Yeah. Yeah. But he still gives her a cure. Like he still actually gives her that cure. He didn't have to do that. Um, there's a war going on inside him right now. And I have no idea which side is going to keep it on winning. I, I think, I think it depends on what level of acceptance Chris gets to, uh, to tie into the theme that's going to be coming up in a bit. Yeah. Well, let's move on. So, so Victoria considers Chris kind of seems to honestly weigh the idea, the idea of just killing him. Yeah. Uh, decides she doesn't want to make him right. And then when she hands him back the syringe and then uses her force field to grab him to kind of startle him, I guess, uh, she realizes that she no longer has perfect control of her force field anymore. Yeah. So this is the cost of the healing, presumably, right? I, I have no idea what the specifics of why that happened are, like, like, like systematically within whatever is going on with her. But I think the metaphorical implication of healing, meaning less connection to alien shard monster, is an interesting one to kind of pick at. Sure. Yeah. I mean, mechanistically, it makes sense that once her body has radically changed shape, uh, the force field would have to be like distorted around her new limb. And now it's just fucking confused about what's going on. So that sure. could be like, like the the kind of very base level powers wonkery how that works. But just in terms of she she trusted him, she trust I think maybe moreover trusted someone other than herself and thus lost control. I like that too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think I think it's interesting because you're absolutely right that like. We talked chapters ago, arcs ago even, about this idea that like it seemed like Victoria was heading to this place where she's going to push every human being out of her life and just like the only the only thing, the only person, the only being she can count on is her precious shard. Um, yeah. And, and so that so this idea that like trusting, extending trust to a person that she was uncertain about, extending that trust outward and not inward, not to the shard damages this connection somehow yeah. is an interesting one. Yeah. I, I'm that's what I'm going to go with for now. Sure. Uh, she also thinks to herself that her foot is healed now, her, her injured foot from the, uh, from being crushed by the Titan, which was apparently really badly injured. And yeah. I, I want to read the text specifically. <laughs> oh gosh. My injured foot at least had healed. I smiled at that, but it was a mean, ironic smile directed at myself. A joke only I was in on. Oof, getting getting dark there, Vicky. I mean, so dark. I mean, it's it's not that it hasn't been a dark, you know, couple of arcs, but like just the the level of of darkness is getting very um um worrying. Yeah, I mean, you can imagine the the smile on her face, a mean, ironic smile, and like Chris standing there going, "Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, what's going on with that face?" Yep. So Victoria then joins Kenzie and Rain, and Rain tells us finally what the message actually was. And it was, uh, Scott was right. 
the message. Uh, so I'm just going to read. I'm going to kind of collate things that he says. It was Stacy Hartwick reading a letter to me. It was Byron at group talking about working on letting things go. It was Jessica accepting Chris and Swansong. Swansong talking about work she was doing with the wardens and seeming proud. Not forgiveness, Rain said. I don't know enough. It's not my place. More like acceptance. And Victoria takes this in, considers this, weighs it, and decides that while she can't forgive or forget, she can accept. And as soon as she thinks that to herself, it takes a bit of weight off her shoulders. Yeah, so I want to I want to spend a lot of time on this. This is super important. Um, I think it, it was going the way I thought it was going to go. Of course, the thing that I love about it is I was like, oh, I'm right. Oh, wait, no, I was like almost textually wrong because I said it's probably going to have to do with forgiveness. And then Rain says not forgiveness. <laughs> I was like, oh, well, then I'm specifically wrong. But I mean, I think I think that's more like it is not my place to say who you should and should not forgive. Right. Like, I, I think my personal understanding and, and, and philosophy on forgiveness is closer to an idea of acceptance that is framed by the story and less like like you need to forgive anyone that ever hurts you. Yeah. And then everything goes and you just say, it's okay. I forgive you. Like that's not quite what I see as, see as forgiveness. My personal definition of it, like is pretty close to the idea of acceptance. So. Yeah. I mean, I would consider forgiveness without acceptance to be not, um, kind of hollow, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, man, it's complicated, right? Cause like you can, you can say, you can, decide to forgive someone before you've accepted what's happened. And then you can use Mm -hmm. that as a kind of pry bar to get to the point of acceptance. That's my feeling anyway. Yeah, I think they're, but, but I think the point is that they are related and possibly even somewhat overlapping concepts, but they are not the same thing. And so that's why rain makes sure to say, no, it's not as easy as just saying I forgive whoever wronged me because that's certainly not going to do it. It's it's a more complicated maneuver. I think that's that's what I liked about what what Wildbo's done here by anchoring it. He, he's not like like acceptance is just a word, right? But what sure. Rain has done is he said, "Look, here's here's this painting that I made. I made this this concept map out of all of these memories that I have of of people exhibiting the quality that I'm thinking about." And that's a nebulous quality. And I'm going to hang the word on, I'm going, to, I'm going to hang it all on the word acceptance. But, but really it's, it's all, it's everything. He says, it's everything. It's all this yeah. stuff that we, that we did in group. It's all the work that we did to get to a better place. And acceptance is probably a decent label for a lot of that stuff. That's, yeah. th- that's what I think the message was. Yeah. And I think with this framing device, the book kind of opens up to you a little bit, right? Like if you, if you take, if you take every interaction in this book, every character, the struggles they've had, the things they've overcome and the things they've been unable to overcome and you frame it in this idea of acceptance, not only accepting uh, the things that you've done, but accepting the things that have been done to you, um, that that is the book like the 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 idea of gold morning, the idea of this this central shared trauma that every single character in the book Every single character in the world basically has gone through and people's ability or inability to deal with it in any kind of way. Like we talked about this at the beginning, everyone rebuilt the city 
We just tried to carry on and move past it. And some people were stuck on it and some people just tried to speed past it. And that the idea that neither of those is a sustainable solution. And I, I thought I like this really made me think back to that question we asked at, at the Christmas break, which was, what is this book about? And I think it was Megafire who said something to the effect of it's kind of about facing your trauma. It's like facing the thing. And I think that's part of acceptance is like facing the thing that happened to you or facing the thing that you did looking at it. Don't blink away from it. Look at it. Deal with it. Like, like let yourself that happened to me. That happened. I did that or someone did that to me. And then finding a way past that, like admitting it happened and then finding a way past that is what every character who succeeds in this book does and every character that fails in this book Every character, like, look at Cradle, look at March, look at Amy. These are characters that are unable to accept the things. Like, March is a person who, like, is so excited to get to this perfect afterlife. Like, she's not even thinking about, like, present day life anymore, right? Yeah. Cradle is a person who cannot, cannot accept the stuff that happened to him, the stuff that went th- he went through. And you, again, compare Cradle to Love Lost. What is the difference between those two characters? Acceptance. Mm-hmm. And that and the, the the rain meaning of that word. And that's and that rain himself like rain did an awful, terrible thing. And n- like he's learning to accept that. Yes, I was the one that did that. And I have some responsibility in that. And I'm working towards it. Yeah, um, I love all that for sure. Um, I, I think you're exactly right. I think that this, like you said, it kind of does unlock the story for you. I, I wanted to mention that I know that there's at least one kind of therapeutic modality. Um, I think the one I'm thinking of is called uh, um, acceptance and commitment therapy, where it's just it's based around the concept of of acceptance being important. Like, like you're 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 suffering, you're suffering. Like tr- trauma causes ongoing suffering. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it I think it also works for chronic pain actually, but I think it works for trauma just as well. That this idea that you're you in this moment, if you have had a trauma, you are suffering. And one of the few real power moves available to you in that moment of suffering is to say, all right, I, I accept that I'm suffering. I accept that mm-hmm. this is happening right now. I just, I just accept that. And, and, and I'm going to just commit to moving on and, and doing the best I can. And, um, I might not have done justice to the, to the therapy thing. I haven't read um, about it in, in years actually, but, uh, yeah, I, I think it's a, it's a very, interesting and valid way of of moving through life when you have when you have to deal with stuff like this yeah and i mean i think if we look at our protagonist and her primary antagonist and amy the final conflict isn't going to come down to this idea right amy do you have the capability to accept the things that you've done um, and the things that were done to you, like Amy, like I, I'm not making excuses for her, but she had s- uh, some shitty hands dealt to her as well. Um, that doesn't doesn't mean that she gets a free pass on all the stuff that she's done. Yeah. Yeah. But it, you need you need to deal with that. Right. It was really cool to see Victoria actually think through that as she's, yeah, as she's like, as she's like, yeah, I can I can be objective and I can see that that the day that all that stuff happened was a completely fucked up day. Not going to forgive her, but. I can sure. just look at the full context and say, okay, <laughs> mm-hmm. which, which is probably the best that she can do, you know? Yeah. And we see the power of it almost immediately, right? Like you said, it, it, it lifts a little bit of weight off her shoulders. This idea, like, 
we've we've we processed this a little bit and it's not a permanent solution like she's not cured now right like there's no cure but yeah uh sometimes just getting a, a little bit of weight off your shoulders is everything yeah yep and we finished this whole part with my next conversation would with her would be the last one way or another um which is both ominous and like very much climactic almost like I, we are a hundred percent moving towards the conclusion of the story. The conclusion of the story, Victoria's conclusion was always going to go through Amy in one way or another. Um, and we're setting that up. We're setting up the final confrontation. Um, and, and what that is going to look like, I think depends on which side of, of this idea of acceptance, both of those characters fall on. Yeah. We're, we're getting a lot of, uh, lines toward the, these last handful of chapters that are, the equivalent of for Frodo. Um, <laughs> um, yeah. So yeah, I, I agree. We're, we're yeah. wrapping up a little bit. Yeah. And we, and we should say that the, the message appears to have worked, right. That, that Fortuna um, got this idea of acceptance and the Titans have changed their behavior. They're not attacking. They're just kind of roaming, which is destructive in its own right, because they're giant power monsters that turn everything to ash just by walking around. Um, but they have changed their behavior and there's this implication that there is possibly this war going on inside Fortuna right now. Um, yeah. As maybe the, the human version is wrestling with the shard version for control. Yeah. Yeah. So speaking of Fortuna, they discussed the fact that continuing to fight like with their more aggressive, less nuanced powers just plays right into Fortuna's hands. Mm -hmm. um, and then subsequent to this, we learned that Valkyrie was just snagged by a crack which is almost certainly like a calculated strike that picking her out specifically. Yeah. So the first part of you talked about the, 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 the idea that these powers have been altered to be a little bit more aggressive, less supporty, less defensy and more all out attack um, is really interesting. Like aggressive powers lead to aggressive solutions and more fighting means more cracking and more tightening. Right. I guess that's the, the plan there. Um, and, and that the solution is you can't punch it. Sorry, Victoria, you can't punch it. You can't do it. Um, and, and it's interesting because Victoria is not an escalation person. But as we said, you know, God, years ago, um, she is a person that likes black and white. Can I punch it or not? Like, <laughs> this is fallen person punch. Yeah, that's how I defeat it. That's how we defeat it. Um, yeah. And now we're kind of in a situation where she's not gonna be able to punch it unless unless it's a crystal and then she'll just punch that again. But I don't know. I, I like this idea of like, we got to rethink this, like this, this continued fighting, this continued battling is just, is just like playing into everything. And we got to go back to that, that dream room, which I love has just kind of become the cornerstone of the story a little bit, the cornerstone of the story in that rain and his, and his cluster is like the, the, almost the thesis of the story in aggregate. Like if we look at each and every one of these people, like what they've gone through and how they've survived or not survived, um, and then just like this is the key to to the literally the door to the problem solving. Mm -hmm. I love it. Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's ultimately good and um, not entirely surprising that the that the ending of this story is not one that involves punching. I mean, it may still involve punching. I'm not going to say there's, there's no more punching. Definitely going to be some punching. But the idea that like Victoria, who struggled with feeling like a brute and feeling like she was savage and 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 overly violent her whole life. I mean, I, I guess I was always going to be surprised if the ending of the story involves that character punching something. 
Yeah. Um, it, it's, it had, it always had to be an internal, um, emotions driven, psychology driven resolution of some kind. Yeah. I agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know about you, but the, the Valkyrie Titan reveal shocked me. Mm -hmm. I was not expecting that. Um, like if we look at like if if one of the lessons of this book is that acceptance is is one of the path forwards to recovery, then the assumption here is that Valkyrie might have never quite gotten there, um, and we saw so little of her. Right, we were just she was not a huge presence in the story, but I feel like she was struggling the last time we were in her head. So I mean I can see the the road that ends up here, but I was still kind of surprised. For sure, yeah. Um, I I guess I saw her as being someone on the edge and, and especially when she tells Jessica that she's terrified. Mm -hmm. I think in retrospect that she knew better than anybody what the risk was. Like, yeah, I don't know if she literally knew like, yeah, there's going to be cracks in in space time and uh, a red dimension under it. And then uh, there's going to be Titans. Maybe she did actually. She's pretty powerful. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. But, but the point is I think that that part of her fear was a fear for herself that she knew that she would be, someone who could could be more at risk than average so um yeah that said i mean now now that you know she's basically the most powerful parahuman so she's probably going to be the most powerful titan i mean who knows what what her i mean just kind of the the most obvious form that her power takes is going to be um she brings out capes to be her minions except Mm -hmm. maybe it's like maybe it's like every cape that ever died at the same time, <laughs> you know, Oh my God, that's terrifying. I mean, I mean, why would it be limited to three anymore? I guess is, sure, is the thing. Sure. And and, and yeah. like, what if, what if thematic thing for it to be Valkyrie who brings forth the dead, right? Yeah. So gosh. Yeah. So are they going to call her uh, the Titania Titan? Is that, I, I don't know. That would be a, a tongue twister. Yeah, that would be too. That, yeah, that, that would cost lives. People wouldn't be able to say it in battle. Ah, yeah. Yeah. So uh, the team decides they'll try some kind of gambit involving the shard world. Tristan, however, insists on staying here to support his old team. And Sveta decides to back him up in that. So maybe she's recognizing that in this moment, Tristan needs a teammate more than ever right now. Um, I don't know about you. This is one of those moments that felt like a, a tinge of finality to it. Like their their conversation here, like this might be the last time all these characters are together at the same time because we have Tristan and Sveta running off to do their thing. I don't know. It just felt like there's, there's potential for that here. I mean, I felt I think last week when, when they said like, yeah, we've got everybody back together and Swan Song is sort of here in spirit. I was like, yep, that's the last time they're all going to be together. Yep. And then we start peeling those characters off a little at a time. I assume we're going to do more of that as the chapters go on. Yeah. And, and I mean, Tristan saying like, but Byron is the one I protect most of all. I was oh, like, oh I was like, God. oh, no, no, yeah. no, no. Well, yeah, I mean, there's like, I don't like he, it's weird because I don't know how to feel about this. And I think we'll talk about this a lot next chapter. But I feel like it would be very weird. Like if we if we do this, this this concept of acceptance and this concept of that is the path forward. It seems like Tristan's on that path. So for the text to then just be like, nope, Titan. Um, I don't know. I, I think he might just die actually. Sure. Sure. I mean, that's, if I had to bet, is he going to die? Is he going to tighten or is he going to be fine? I think I would rank order it like 
die first and oh, then God. be fine and then I tighten. Don't, I don't like this. <laughs> Put it that way. I don't like it. Switch those around. No. He's going to be fine. He's going to be fine. They're all going to be fine. Everyone's going to be fine. At the end of the story, they're going to get like the magic time turner button and everything's going to go back to the, to the beginning. Maybe. Yeah. That would be really, really satisfying, right? Everybody would be really happy with that ending. <laughs> Just reverse the entire But like book. a beginning without charts. It'll be fine. It'll oh, be fine. okay. That would be really great. I just don't want people to die. <laughs> Look, you're talking to somebody who has still not accepted that Taylor's dead. So, you know. Yeah. To- I mean, let's be honest here. She did. So just suspend your disbelief, Scott. She did. All right. Moving. No, she's not. It, it, 19.D. And we begin the moon song interlude. Yeah. And I suspected when I was reading the first time that the the last chapter ending on a Tristan beat met we would come to an interlude when I knew it was an interlude that has to do with a Tristan related character. Uh, I did not expect Moonsong, but I ended up really loving it. Surprisingly loving it. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. So Moonsong B Brianna uh, helps her parents unpack their belongings into a tent. She struggles and successfully keeps it together despite being annoyed at her dad's whole energy uh, pretty much half the chapter is centered around this comedic concept that they just want to get the fucking space heater out of the fucking box. Yeah, but they can't. Yeah. Because they keep getting interrupted. Like, it, it's so it's so great. Like, this is really wonderful, very quick early characterization from Wildbow here. Her dad asks us to asks her to get the space heater out of the box. And then while she's in the middle of doing that to ask, he asks her to do something else, get her a box cutter. And she looks over and the box cutter is like right next to him. And all he has to do is reach out and get it. And that's a pet peeve of mine too. And like someone asks for something and it's like right there. And I'm just like, just get, just get it. I'm not going to, I'm doing something. Just get it. Like someone asks you to do something, you're doing it. And they're like, Oh yeah, do this for me as well. It's like, no, I'm, I'm it annoys the hell out of me. So I get it. I get it. Um, but she glances at her mom and her mom gives her this like, please just do it look. And it's just amazing how within like just a handful of paragraphs here at the start of the chapter, we understand this entire family dynamic perfectly. And I think it's really important because we, the reader, already understand Moonsong on some level. Um, we kind of get what her deal is a little bit, but we don't understand this family dynamic. We don't understand her parents much yet. And we're about to like push this dynamic forward. We're about to make some progress on this whole thing. And I think it's really important to set a baseline there or else that progress has no meaning. And so very quickly through, through just this, this simple act of unpacking and the way that both parents handle this, we've got this idea of what this family dynamic is. Yeah, and it's a fucked up one, right? I mean, yep. it's it's not like fucked up in the sense of many of the horrible situations we've seen in the story, like Kenzie's, for example. Sure. But like, I feel like if you were visiting their house, within seconds you would be like extremely uncomfortable and on edge. <laughs> sure. Like sure. about the whole dynamic and and weirdness of uh, just like the level of tension. I think is what it is because Brianna especially when people show up but even before that there's this there's this tension there's this walking on eggshells eggshells and it's uh uh i mean we'll get to it but i think it's no surprise that she ended up with the power that she did yeah totally yeah um just one cool kind of character beat i, I like how uh moonsong kind of has this physical ritual of kind of centering herself and squaring her stance when she uses her power 
yeah, there's something kind of very Zen about it, which makes sense. I mean, she's like altering one of the most fundamental rules of physics yeah using magic powers so it makes sense that she'd want to center herself a little bit before doing it i love how it's like the way it's described is that like mass is an indent and you're just like reversing the indent i love i love how like these concepts are described sometimes yeah me too it it, the the, like sort of visual kind of synesthetic component to these things yeah Um, i like this bit of humanity here it's it's very complex and strikes me as as very realistic where uh okay her father says there how about that space heater ren her mother said the fierceness of it surprised brianna her mother tended to be meek let our daughter rest i'll be happier if i know you guys are okay brianna said then she wondered why she'd said it why she'd countered her mother when her mother was showing more spine than usual um, just, just uh, like, it's fun cause it, it, it kind of highlights what the dynamic is by throwing in this, uh, it's this like an exception to the rule proves the rule or, or whatever the, the phrase sure. is. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. And, and I love, I, I think it, it, it builds complexity into the relationship a little bit here. Like there's some, there's some real resentment from Brianna here, um, at her mother who in this instance was defending her. Um, but she's got some old resentment some old issues with both of them and those kind of boil over here even in a moment where her mom is like sticking up for her yeah right i mean what's interesting is most of her attention is focused on her dad in this interlude but i I kind of wonder if there's not some something simmering between her and her mom also that just isn't isn't really expressed because yeah yeah because her dad is the one that like reaches out and has this really cathartic um, moment of acceptance with her Uh uh-huh and her mom isn't really involved in that at all. Um, yeah. So. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, it's it's like her dad was the one who put the pressure on her, and, and her mom was the one who just kind of stood by and let it happen. Maybe. Yeah, and there's some. I think there's some understandable resentment at that. Yeah, yeah. So her dad, uh, yeah, has this emotional moment. Tells her that he feels that he's, he's super proud of her, but he also feels like he has been responsible for putting uh, too much weight on her. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, she tells them, yeah, pretty much I uh, triggered because of the pressures that you created. And her parents take it pretty well. Like he's not like he's not mad or insulted. He's like somewhat sorry. Yeah. Um, not not too sorry. <laughs> he he could be sorrier. Let me put it that way. Sure. Um, but then he tells her he wouldn't respect her any less if she retired from the fight um, and did not return to the Titan battle. Yeah. Which is like kind of his way of putting the pressure off. Like, yeah this pressure you, that's don't feel that from me like you i am not telling you you have to do this like i would not think differently of you at all if you don't go out there and fight more yeah um, right it's it's a really beautiful moment like i agree that he could be a little bit better i think that the line of like don't don't let like i forget exactly what it was but something to the effect of like don't let like you're you're better than people and don't let people like talk you down at that like that that sets wrong with me a little bit but i do think overall it's this moment of acceptance on both sides it's our big it's our big word of the week um yeah and i think we see a lot of it going on in this interlude like he is accepting his responsibility and what happened to her he is he is looking at it he is acknowledging it and he is taking responsibility for it um and she is accepting hit him taking responsibility for it but it's not also is also not letting herself off the hook right like even as like it's very easy to say yeah it was all your fault but she's like yeah i mean you definitely didn't help but like i i had agency in these choices too 
and I did these things to myself as well. Um, and I don't know. I, I think like she, she kind of accepts his apology. Um, I don't, does he ever specifically say I'm sorry? But you know, you know um, I, I think I think that's maybe a nice thing to point out is that I don't think he does say I'm sorry, but I think she accepts the place he's coming from regardless. Yeah, and, and yeah. so it's still a, it's it is a moment of of she gets a little bit of weight taken off of her shoulders, um, mm-hmm. a little bit of that weight removed, um, because of acceptance ultimately because sure. she is she accepts that he he never meant for her to be hurt. And that's enough for her to be able to give him a, a hug and, and everything's, sure. everything's better or a yeah. little bit better at least. Kind of accepting that the people that hurt us are, are just infallible, messed up people that screw up yeah. sometimes. Um, and, and, and I mean, I think what we're seeing kind of is like the, the catalyst that acceptance can have because he's accepting the, the, his, the role that he had in this whole thing. It allows her to accept where he's coming from. Um, we can count how many times we're going to say that word in this chapter. Yeah. Um, one thing I did want to talk about here, though, is the fact that this is a Moonsong interlude. We don't see Moonsong's trigger event. We we get it. We get it's implied, right? Like we strong. It's in strongly implied what it what it is and why it happened. But we don't actually live through it. And I kind of want to read into that a bit here because we're at the end of the book now. Almost. This is a book about recovery, about hopefully getting better and striving and working to get better. And I think I think we've moved kind of past the moment of trauma. And so in this interlude, we are not seeing Moonsong at the moment of her original trauma. We are seeing it her at the moment of her acceptance of that trauma. Um, and I think that's super important. I think I don't know. I think I think something would have been lost if we like dive back to that original trigger moment and really sit with the awfulness of that for a while and then move to this. I mean, it would have been a great contrast, but like I just feel like this is this is where we're at now and this is what we're focusing on. I agree. It's if it, it would have felt um, I, I mean, there's almost a kind of treading water if, if you if you go back to that, uh, you know, rehashing the trauma thing. I don't know. I, I can see how it could have worked either way, actually, but but I I, I understand what you mean exactly. So mm-hmm. yeah, um, yeah. So then tribute for Kate and Scribe show up, which are quite an odd bunch. Yeah. Uh, so it's interesting because Moonsong seems like much more conscious of tribute's race and for Kate's transness, and I guess scribes Naziness. If we're going to pull out her most prominent <laughs> feature, um, not not the Capricorn ever really knew scribe, but like Tristan, I don't even think Tristan ever pointed out that tribute was black, but it's like the first thing that Moonsong points out, right? So it's kind of highlighting the idea that like through some depth writing, we see Brianna's prejudice and her perspective, sure, um, especially toward Furcate, and we also see that. Uh, that prejudice stems directly from her fear of her parents' disapproval. Like, like part of it is that is that she's uncomfortable around for Kate, but she can handle that. What what puts her on edge is like you can kind of see her eyes like flicking between for Kate and her parents. Like, oh, are they going to react? So it's like this this girl who triggered because she was trusted by she was crushed by parental expectations is hyper hyper like worried that her parents are going to have a negative reaction to her friends being here, her, 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 you know, her friends that they would consider to be unusual and perhaps unacceptable. 
Yeah, I, th- I think you're absolutely right here. And I think this is really important, right? Because we've we've spent the last 10 minutes or so talking about this character who has absolutely made strides, but she's still struggling with this stuff, right? She is not at the end of her road. She's still struggling with these feelings. I think she she describes Kay being transgender as other weirdness, which is not it's not great. Not not great. Not great yeah. to to call it to, to frame it in that way. Yeah. Um, but she's she is working on it. And and I think these moments where she is worried about her family, you know, without saying anything explicitly, we get that that's where her bigoted nits comes from. And the, and then it, it lines up exactly, as you said, with the the pressure that her parents put on her. Like, I, I just find it incredibly realistic that in this moment, like she's trying to get better herself. And yet, like she knows she knows the way her parents feel about these things. These people show up and she's immediately like, oh, God, what are they going to think? Oh, God. Oh, God. Um, and it, it, I think it's really important that it comes right after this moment of catharsis. Right. Because we just had Brianna's father like have this moment of like genuine like uh, reach out and try to to patch things up with with his daughter um, and make things better. And then we like are reminded that, Hey, these people are kind of bigots mm-hmm. and that's not great. And I think it just shows like the, how complicated people are, right? Like they have reprehensible views of people, but they're also still like parents. And yeah. like, it's, I just think it's like a perfect, like you're, it's like this war, this heartwarming moment between father and daughter and then you move immediately to this like oh god what are my parents going to think about this person because she's transgender and it's like oh oh yeah and it's just i it's it's wonderfully complex right i mean the part of it that's saddening and all too realistic to me is that um like her parents would have to be really incredibly awful people to have a to like complain about the presence of of this trans woman who is saving their lives by fighting monsters for them sure um but brianna is still worried that it might happen yeah <laughs> like, yeah you're that's, right that's how <laughs> that's how it fucked up and ingrained that is yeah in that relationship yeah and, and and just the the fact that she is always has her radar up for like oh is this going to offend them and that continues by the way like that's yeah that's the whole rest of the of this chapter like because now she goes off and she, she chats with scribe and Moonsong, or, or rather, yeah, she chats with Scribe, and and she's like constantly on edge because, um, like Scribe and and Furcade are talking about heavy shit, the kinds of things that kind of prey on your mind when you spend years fighting monsters and now you're in a giant battle against titans, and Moonsong is preoccupied because she doesn't want her parents to overhear them using such language, and, and yeah. I'm just like, man, they did a number on her. They they really did. They really did. It's I love that. Like we have this whole thing with her father and and you're right. Her father gets most of the focus in this chapter, but everything to do with like uh, being uncomfortable around her parents is mostly focused on her mom in this part because her dad's, I think, in the tent still doing stuff. So I think it just goes to show that this is not a feeling that is coming solely from uh, Brianna's father. It is both of them collectively. Um, and I, I just I think that was it's a good little detail to to establish that that it's not just dad it's not just dad and then mom's just quiet in the background she she feels some of these ways as well yeah yeah and I I do like in this conversation where we get to see a little bit of scribe again um, scribe who already wasn't doing great 
And then she lost Victor and she's continuing to not do great. And she's expressing that not greatness through sarcasm and pushing back against Moonsong in perfect ways. Like, I love that. Like, um, I'm going to keep fighting, boss. Tammy said less like a person and more like a robot saying her scripted lines like the the, the repetition of boss here is just so dismissive of Moonsong. And, and I love the kind of the push and pull between them about like boss or friend, right? Like uh, Brianna is trying to be both. She's trying to help this person legitimately trying to help them. And, and Tammy's scribe is just making it really fucking hard. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, totally. I do like, like I love for Kate so much and I love that she even tries to be here for Tammy, the Nazi in this moment, like Tammy's talking and then, She's like trying to get her to focus on the bright sides and not just focus on the dour part. But of course, Tammy's response is just even more depressing. Yeah. In the moment. Um, but they end up with like this point of mutual respect, right? Like, I, I think that's something to look at positively. Well, sure. I mean, I mean, think about how cool this is that Walbo has taken Rune, the, the, the Nazi, mm-hmm. Sabrina, the teenage Nazi, and, and, and basically... <laughs> paired her off against Furcate, this this trans woman who he's introduced in this story and created the situation very organically where in the midst of all this terribleness they're finding common ground and 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 um well i mean maybe that's maybe i should rephrase it and say the nice thing about this is that is that tammy has found her way to accepting um stuff that that she previously would not have and that's great that's good for her it shows it shows growth yeah um, i agree with that and it's just uh very very generous of fur kate to tolerate uh tammy <laughs> yeah yeah totally um yeah so anyway uh and and moonsong for that matter that's true yeah, yeah. i mean i mean i fur kate and moonsong have already kind of been had a relationship but adding tammy here just highlights i think the 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 what's going on under the surface Totally. Yeah. So Brianna's mom giving uh, uh, Tammy scribe a swat on the head for saying asshole uh, <laughs> is both a highlight of the story and another indication of how horribly overbearing she is. Yeah, I I, I totally agree with you there. I, I love how like shocked and indignant scribe <laughs> is about it, though. Like, yeah. How often do you think her in her entire life has been scolded for her language? Probably never. Never. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So Brianna's parents are a little overbearing, but maybe scribes were a little too underbearing. Uh (laughs) Maybe she needs to tell people to she needs to have people that tell her to watch her fucking language every once in a while. Like maybe that's good for her. Yeah, right. It's kind of a a structure. Yeah. 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 Um, So for Kate communicates to Brianna that Byron is seeing Vista. Which yeah. is actually rather gutting to Brianna, who mm-hmm. we learn was actually like willing to stick it out with him. And he was the one who broke it off, which I don't think we knew necessarily. Yeah. If, if we're talking about the breakup that happened back in chapter 13.1, um, we do see that breakup from the perspective of, of Victoria. We don't actually get to hear what's said or like what anything happens. Like Aaron makes the assumption that, that Byron is getting dumped. Uh, Victoria seems to think things are like maybe a little bit more mutual than Aaron does. But all all that happens is Byron comes walking back towards the group before he gets there. He switches out to Tristan 
Moonsong walks away and Tristan makes it clear that they're going their separate ways and Moonsong is reevaluating things, but he refuses to say anything else. He refused to, to say more to respect Byron's wishes on the matter. Um, so yeah, it seems like Aaron, especially and, and Victoria a little bit were a little incorrect in their assumptions here. Brianna wanted to try and Byron was the one that was like, I don't think so. I don't think I can do that. I, I don't think I could. And it's interesting here. The quote is he didn't think he could be my boyfriend. And then you add Tristan to the mix. They come as a package deal. So those are two distinct things, right? Like it's not that I don't think I can be your boyfriend because of Tristan, because right. of the Tristan situation. It's I don't think you can, I can be your boyfriend and the whole K70 of it all. Uh-huh. Um, that's it. Those are different things. Like, yeah, right. I, I mean, I think definitely he, wanted to go a different way right yeah i mean since 13.1 was probably like seven hours ago based on the the pace (laughs) at which the story goes basically basically byron dumped her and then was with vista five minutes later sure which from his from from everything we know good for you byron um but but i totally see why this would hurt uh moon song's feelings in this moment yeah and i wonder if there was like a, a a part of her brain that justified the breakup as like, well, he couldn't date anyone because of the whole case 70 situation. And then he finds out, she finds out he's dating someone and it's like, wait a minute. My explanation for why I just got dumped has just been ripped out, ripped apart. Like like it's gone now. Yeah. And that hurts. That hurts twice. It hurts because the person you had feelings for has found someone else. And it hurts because the reason is because they just didn't choose you. Yeah. I mean, it, it really, you really feel for, for moon song here like it it hurts about as much as it's possible for it to hurt it's uh yeah and she says and she says like she's like annoyed because it's not someone that's like shitty like an awful person like it's it's vista who is like a great person very highly respected in the cape community i i love this like she says fuck she was still thinking in terms of status of pecking orders and and being on top of not being on top in this particular pecking order and i think that shows that she's still struggling with some of her old tendencies and that's a part of her that she's still working on. She falls back into that, especially in this, this pang of jealousy here. Um, but then she realizes it, recognizes it and tries to move on and then says she could very much see it knowing Byron, having some peripheral knowledge and having a handful of conversations with Vista. She's like at the, at the end of her jealousy is like, I get it. I get it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, part of this is definitely Moonsong specific issues. And part of it is just that I think for anyone, the only worse thing than finding out that your ex has someone new is finding out that the someone new is just way cooler than you. They're fucking awesome. Yeah, yeah. that's the worst. Right. None of my exes are allowed to date better people yeah. than me. It's just part of the whole yeah. thing. Thankfully, that's never happened to me because, you know. Because you're fucking Matt Freeman that's, over that's, here. That's, I mean, I didn't say it. Um <laughs> So tangent, but like I would imagine that Vista and Moonsong would have cool power synergy, like two shaker powers that if overlapped could manipulate both space and gravity, which is sort of space, but with momentum wrapped around it. You know, math. Yeah, you got me all excited imagining this and it's not going to ever happen because it's a love triangle. But that it doesn't wouldn't that make it more likely to happen for drama? I mean, maybe I don't know. I, Does Wild Bo like love triangles? I, well, I, I think many Wild love Bo, triangles. Wild Bo likes dramatic storytelling. True. So we'll see. Uh, so they hear Victoria's speech come over the radio, and her dad is persuaded by this extremely awesome speech to join the invasion of Hades. 
Oh, hell yeah, Mr. Moonsong. I hope you don't die yeah, horribly. Me too. me too. I think the most important thing we need to point out about this whole speech is that Brianna criticizes Victoria's tendency to give dramatic pauses in her speech. And frankly, Matt, that's unacceptable. <laughs> that was a dramatic pause. This, that's perfect. Those are perfect length, by the way. Not too long <laughs> and not too short. Uh, Victoria's speech was was perfect. So you're you're just wrong. You're just wrong. Moonsong, I'm sorry. You're just, you're just wrong. She was winning me over, and then this, and just done. Done with her. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Let's just stop reading. <laughs> uh, anyway, um, so then we cut. We do a, you know, ellipsis, and we're on the battlefield, and formerly Team Reach now battles formerly Victor, setting a clever trap using Moonsong's power to hide a massive crack that they lure him onto and then drop him. Tristan pulls a clutch assist, knocking Victor into the abyss. So uh, we're going to go through that scene that I just paraphrased in a little bit more detail. But I, first of all, I really love how at first the text establishes that she's managing 20 different gravity wells and then doesn't mention that again, just leaves it unresolved until the trap is sprung. And then we definitely remember that and it works so well. Yeah, I, it's 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 so satisfying. Um, the whole this whole fight is incredible from the start with like scribe just like begging Victor to to dig deep and find the humanity inside him and stop doing this uh, is really great. The payoff and, and the setup and payoff with the trap is so good. I don't have a lot else to say about the fight itself, except that it's fun. It's so rare in these Titan fights that we get like even a crumb of a bit of a feeling of triumph. And it's so satisfying that we get it here. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. I mean, this is uh I mean, they didn't kill him, but they knocked no. him. They, they put him out of, you know, the path of, of harming people for yeah. for a while, which is which is good. So it's a big deal. It's a yeah. big deal. Yeah. Um, so she notices Tristan's nearby, helping them, and uh, of course, her first thought is about how she hates him. But she also hates hating him, which is I just love it. I love that that little bit. This is a person that is trying so hard to be better, to accept things both about herself and about the people around her. And and as we see here, the one thing that she hasn't been able to put aside, the one thing that she hasn't been able to accept is Tristan and what he did and how much she hates him. And because this book is fantastic, we take that one last thing she can't accept and we put it directly in front of her and make her deal with it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Because one of the big things that happens here is that, Tristan is about to be like he's basically like um, taunted the Titan and it's heading towards him now and she needs to save him. And and it says here she had to save Tristan, if only to save Byron. But no, she was lying to herself again, the emotional turmoil. And so it's like almost immediately upon Tristan joining this battlefield, she's brought she says she hates this guy, but she's struggling with it and is immediately brought to this moment of. Uh, I have to act here to save them, even though I hate them. And it and she tries to justify it as just for Byron. But even that is aware that that's a lie. Um, right. It's complex. It's it, complex. It, it's it's not. I mean, I think it's oversimplifying to even call it hate in the first place, although she she does. She does call it hate. But like when someone betrays you, the reason it hurts is because you cared about them. Right. Yeah. So. Yeah. So she clearly still cares about him. She's just angry at him. Yeah, now, well, that's I, hard to admit to yourself when you're in that position. So sure. it just gets rounded down to hate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, 
so yeah, they continue to fight. Tristan insists that Sveta save the two Furcate clones as a favor Ugh. to Furcate, even though it's not like strictly necessary because she can, you know, they can die. She, she'll be fine. Um, <laughs> and, and then he keeps his cool when Tribute verbally abuses him. And eventually he manages to back down and, and obey Moonsong's orders despite not understanding why he's doing it. Yeah, so we got to talk about each of those three things. The first one, it's not strictly necessary to save those Furcate clones. No, but... What if those other clones were closer to the person that Furcate wants to be than this one standing in front of them, right? Mm-hmm. So it's kind of by sacrificing right. them, it's removing the option, removing that choice of of definition of self for Furcate. And I love that Tristan knows that and recognizes that and recognizes the importance of it enough that he like stands his ground about saving those those people. Yeah, I I love it. I it's it's. Like even Furcate herself is like, it's not that important. And he knows her better. He knows her better. And he's like, no, it, it is. It definitely is. And then Sveta is the one that actually does it. Right. And I just love that. Like she's here to support him. Like that's why she's on the battlefield now. She's there to support him both emotionally and then physically. Like Tristan wants to do this thing. I will do it for you, Tristan. I don't have any personal attachment to Furcate. I have really never known this person, but I'm going to do it for you. Yeah, it's it's beautiful overall. Just the idea that that Sveta is here with him, I think, is really great because the story didn't have to go that way. Right. Sveta could have sure. tagged along with the others. But but here she's saying, like, look, I I, I really need to take care of Tristan. Mm-hmm. And and we, and we have learned that they have a bit of a closer relationship than maybe we've been privy to necessarily because they they've gone off and done things. Just the two of them that Victoria is not privy to. It's that so, Weld fan club. Exactly. So, yeah, I, I love I love that she's here and I love that she is kind of being this supporting, almost unobtrusive presence here. Yeah. Well, and, and to move on to the the tribute stuff, I I really like those moments as well, because he is so venomous. Like we can imagine how much this hurts Tristan to hear this stuff. And yet he rolls with it. And the thing that is interesting to me is that, like, I think Moonsong, like, doesn't feel entirely dissimilar than tribute does. She's a little bit more political, so she doesn't like voice these barbed hateful opinions out loud. And I think she's like actively trying to avoid feeling them. Like she recognizes that it's not a good, healthy way to feel. Um, and tribute doesn't. So I don't know. I'm worried about tribute. If, if this whole thing is acceptance, doesn't seem like he's, yeah, Going down that path. Tribute's given his acceptance power to Rihanna in this moment. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Um, so, uh, like, so much important stuff happens in this in this chapter with Moonsong, and I, and I love how it ends. And we'll get there in a second. But I think this moment where Tristan um, chooses to trust Moonsong and fall in line a little bit here is, like, actually low-key super important for him. Because he's he's a stubborn guy. He's kind of indignant sometimes. He loves to be the leader. And yet he trusts. And like we talked last chapter about this concept of trust, trust, but verify like he just trusts her um, and he he has history with her. Like he doesn't like her either because she's a bigot, um, but he he trusts her in this moment. And yeah, I think the reason why Moonsong is able to get to the point that she gets at the end of this chapter is because Tristan what does what he does here in trusting her. And so like, I I think, I think acceptance is like this incredibly personal thing that each person has to come to and decide for themselves. But like we talked about earlier, 
seeing someone else get there can be a catalyst for you doing it yourself. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I I like, um, I like that trust is coming more to the forefront because we've talked a lot about connections. We said the word connections a thousand times so far and (laughs) almost as many as acceptance. and, And, and occasionally we've actually kind of poked at it and been like, what does that really mean? Because like, Hating someone is a kind of connection, but I don't, I don't think that's right. <laughs> sure. Um, um, like liking someone is also a kind of connection, but I don't actually think that's it either. So what is what does it mean? And, and I think maybe the closest I'm going to get to it is trusting someone mm-hmm. that when you when you lose anyone who you trust um, and you feel like you're completely alone, that's that's when you tighten. That's when you crack. And the idea that Tristan is willing to trust here, I think, is I think is very good, actually. Yeah, I think so, too. And we'll see at the end of that, that because of that, Moonsong is able to trust him a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Okay, so Byron and Moonsong are able to touch base briefly because Tristan shifts out when they do their coup de grace on, sorry, coup de grace on uh, the Nemean Titan. Coup de Gracie. Yeah, right. I was corrected on that one time about a hundred episodes ago. So <laughs> I can't sure believe I you it. remember that. Yeah. Um, so she says something, uh, sorry, uh, Moonsong says something sweet to Byron just as he shifts out and, uh, Tristan catches it and tries to be kind to her about it. Um, because he didn't hear it. And, uh, but like still, he, uh, Tristan seems really emotionally precarious. He's reminding her of, of the desperate time after he had murdered Byron and hired mercenaries and just kind of his, his lowest moment. Um, still, though, despite all that, she does decide to trust him. Yeah, so uh, this is kind of heartbreaking, right? And this is one of those moments where I'm like, was that the last time that Byron and Moonsong see each other? Um, and I don't know. I don't know. I hope not, but it could be. And I love how Tristan handles it with like honesty and humility, right? Like saying, I'm sorry he didn't hear that, but I I think he would appreciate it and I think you're right. He really helped me too. He really helped. I know he helped you. I think she says something to the effect of like the, the reason you're like the reason you're, um, uh, the reason I am the way I am right now. I am that the place I am right now is because you helped me get there. And, and Tristan basically says the same thing. It's like, he helped me do that too. Uh, and then they both admit to each other that they still have a way to go. And it's just this beautiful bit of acceptance. Like, this person, the reason I am better now is because of this person, but I'm not there yet. And they both agree on that. And it's this moment of connection and trust, as you said. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, I mean, it's a, it's a high note, right? It's a good, it's a good optimistic ending. I mean, despite the fact that we're getting all kinds of death flags for Tristan, I think it's an optimistic ending. Yeah. I, I like, I just I don't know. Like he could die. You're right. I just have a hard time believing that like this person that's working so hard to, you're right. He's gonna die. I just talked myself. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Remember, remember, remember how how hard Swan Song was working. <laughs> I forgot what book we were in. Um, but I think I mean like like I, I think you're right about tightening being the least likely situation here though because Moon Song extending trust to him might have been exactly what he needs to hold on to that connection. Um, and and the the ending here is really poetic. I think because we talked about earlier in the chapter, Moonsong said the one thing she can't push aside, the one thing she can't push aside is her hatred of Tristan. And then we close on this chapter with the text saying for Byron, she pushed those feelings aside and nodded. 
And so that's that's a little arc there at the end of that chapter. I love it. It makes yeah. me so happy. It makes me happy too. Ward makes me happy. Who would have thought? I mean, that's that's the thing. Wildbo, he, he's got to help you back to your feet before he knocks you down again. That's true. So that's true. Overall, in this arc, we've had we've had Egg, we've had Gilpatrick, and we've had Moonsong interludes. Mm-hmm. And I'm trying to find the thread that connects all three of these. So far, all I've got is that these are prominent people from the pasts of our main cast. Yep. Gilpatrick doesn't really fit the pattern that well. I mean, Egg and Moonsong are something like former antagonists to Sveta and Tristan, respectively, while Gilpatrick is a saint. And, I mean, the only thing he did wrong was, like, what he had to do, and there was really no other option, and Victoria didn't begrudge it, so... Or she didn't begrudge it that much. Yeah, and um, Gilpatrick is closer to Victoria, not Rain. But Rain is the the his the breakthrough character that's the focus of the Gilpatrick. That's killer. true. Yes. Yeah. And so we, I, I think, I mean, we have, um, we have characters that are all, uh, have their own interlude chapter, but the events of that interlude chapter focus and and kind of circle around a particular member of breakthrough. We have Gilpatrick for rain. We have egg egg for Sveta works a little bit less, but she's in it. So I'm going to count it is, <laughs> and, yeah. and moon song for Tristan. Um, and so my wonder here is if that trend is going to continue. We have Kenzie left, um, Chris possibly, and maybe even Victoria herself. I don't know, but uh, yeah, we could be getting that crystal interlude to get an eye on Victoria. Sure. Sure. So I, I think if, if we're accurately, uh, you know, framing this trend, it seems to me that we will get at least one, possibly a couple more interludes, each with uh, a different character that is going to be framed and um, and circling around one of our breakthrough people. Like, I, I'm really curious if we say that, yes, this is what's going to happen. And the question becomes, well, who who Kenzie then? Could it be one of Kenzie's former teammates um, the, the, when, when she was in the ward, someone from from that life um is it dragon um i don't know I don't yeah because we already had a natalie interlude so it's not natalie yeah maybe but the kenzie one will be chris that would be interesting that would be interesting well yeah i don't know i mean i i agree that that's probably the pattern um and i look forward to finding out who it is yeah me too so um for the first time in a while i want to do a name game and honestly sure. this is kind of like a catch-up name game because <laughs> this is this is me Okay, this is what happened, is I wanted to figure out um, the, the usage of giants because all, all of Chris's monstrosities are called giants. And obviously the titans are the titans. And I was like, okay, well, what, 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 uh, what mythological giants reference is this to? And maybe I'm the last person in the world to figure this out and everybody else already knew this. But anyway, <laughs> in Greek mythology, the titans were the first generation of Gaia's and Uranus's children. So they were like the first kind of godlike uh, creatures born of Gaia and then the giants were the second generation of, of creatures born of Gaia so the um oh yeah another piece of trivia one of Gaia's children not technically a titan was a uh, Hecatonchires which was actually well, actually there were three monsters called the Hecatonchires and they were hundred-handed monsters so that's what that's where that name for uh, uh for Cradle Shard came from Hey, um, I, I'm also wondering now that we're kind of on this on this track, like if the gods are the children of the Titans, then then are the gods the parahumans? Like, is that how is that how we're doing that? Could be. Um, other notable spawn of Gaia include Rhea, which was 
one of uh, Egg's birds, Echidna, yep. of course, Edna, uh-huh. <laughs> and and the Nemean dragon. I don't, don't really know what Nemean means, but yeah, the Nemean dragon. Um, Isn't it a place? I don't. I maybe. Yeah, sure. There's also there's also one named Antaeus, which is like one letter swap away from Antares, which I mean it's probably coincidence, but Antaeus does have a connection to Hercules, and people have pointed out uh, uh, the the trials of Hercules and, and that being related to um, to Victoria's character. Although Antaeus is killed by Hercules, so that's not a good sign. Uh oh. <laughs> I also wanted to point out that Rhea and Echidna. Um, are explicitly like Gaia related creatures, which is funny because they're both Eden related. And Gaia yeah, is true. Gaia is Eden in this in this particular metaphor that I'm stretching to the, yeah. to the breaking point. Um, <laughs> to and, the breaking point. And, and, and I went down. I was I was trying to figure out if there were other um, giants. And of course, the Bible has giants, uh, the, the Nephilim, which are either fallen angels or half angels or something. It's confusing. Um, they're often referred to as giants. Frankly, I think that the giants in this story are supposed to be the Greek giants, not the biblical giants. But anyway, I, I didn't know any. I didn't know most of this stuff before I started my my little deep dive. Um, did so, you ever? Did you ever see the Darren Aronofsky Moses? I don't know. <laughs> it's like it's trippy. It's got like all. It's very like biblically mythological. Oh, yes. with like giants and wait, like there's rock giants and. It's, fucking nuts wait was it moses or was it not noah? moses not moses no noah. thank you yeah thank with you. russell yes. crowe right yes yes That's, it was yeah. not a great movie but it was fucking wild it had nephilim nephilim it did yeah it did yeah uh okay well um that was fun and i feel like it was, it was belated because all, some of these names are like chapters and chapters and chapters old but um it all ties up into a nice package though so there it you does. go i like that package yeah a discussion question time uh, favorite character from last week. This, the discussion question was favorite character who was introduced only only to die five seconds later, and what was their storytelling purpose or function? Beat Nemesis says Malek, the parahumans online <laughs> user who stepped off the page and into our memes, is silly and attention grabbing. But who knows what his purpose was? To die for our sins as the community <laughs> of parahumans. That's that's true. You're exactly right. Uh, next up, we have Kiyua Hiwag chooses a particular individual from Twig who shall remain nameless. One day. One day I'll know what that was. Yeah. It's a good answer, though. Uh, Vice Versailles goes with Gunnery Ann, the parahuman who had used her Trump power to assist in the defense against the Titans before being squished um, just before Vicky can even, like, complete her thought. Um, and this death establishes how quick and consuming the losses against the Titans are. It sure does. That was rough. Uh, Glastic Painway talks about how Worm was cool and fun until we got our first on-screen cape death, Chubster, who Taylor tries to save, then leaves to die in order to escape a tsunami, hammering home how desperate things are. Yeah, you know, I mean, like, it's been a long time since I've read Worm now. It's been, what, like, over two years? And I've lost some of the details in my mind, but that death, I remember that one. I remember Chepster. Yeah, right. I mean, especially on the first read through that that whole bit hits you the way it's supposed to. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Um, Hobo Demon mentions some of the Slaughterhouse 9000 clones, including the Ashley clone and the uh, uh, mannequin clone. Uh, These these character. uh, No, sorry. Especially in in the Bonesaw interlude when they're in their tanks. 
these characters exist so Bonesaw can have some human interaction, do some character development, and deepen our understanding of what's going on with the shards uh, just before she boils them alive. (laughs) Awesome. Yeah. Cool. (laughs) Bonesaw. Do you think she's going to do anything in the climax of this book? Good question. I mean, she is kind of... I I wouldn't be shocked. She's she's around. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Uh, Next, we have bisexual punch party who chooses Bastion introduced as having been filmed using racial slurs against a child, but then heroically sacrificing himself. Capes have survived trauma. Bisexual punch party says they live imperfect lives and in many ways don't live up to the heroic archetype we associate with superheroes, but they also willingly place themselves in very terrible situations that demand heroism from them. And frequently they live up to the moment. Very early on in Worm, Wildbo sets the tone for how messy his characters are and how we try and judge them They're and how when we try and judge them, they're always both their good deeds and their bad deeds. Yep. I love that. Yeah, I thought that was really well written. I really appreciated that. Mm-hmm. Good, good thoughts by Sexual Punch Party. Sarah Penguin points out that in a sense, Furcade is killed off right after being introduced. Her initial purpose is to establish conflict between Moonsong and Tristan while providing a red herring as to the cause. Furcate has a lot of other purposes later in the story. Her power foreshadows the nature of the Shard Dream world, and the lemon candy beat mirrors Victoria is not Victoria beat. Yeah, that's a good point. I love that last one, yeah. Yeah, it's it's, it's actually surprising how much work um, that character is doing. Yep. Uh, Wolf Tamer 9 mentions Nectin Wellen and Mierfra Durgus from Homestuck, which is a reference I know nothing about. You could have just typed random sound. These could not be characters. You could have just typed random sounds. Yeah. Um, but I'm sure it's a great answer. And everyone that has read Homestuck is like, yes, absolutely. Great answer, Wolf Tamer 9. Sadly, that cannot be me. Cause, but I'm going to assume it's a great answer. I'm not entirely sure those aren't made up sounds, actually. But whatever. <laughs> um, Ivara Watt chooses Balk, the flying cape with the big metal ball from the big teacher fight. Uh, it was a cool way of showing the sheer brutality of that fight. Oh, poor Balk. Yeah, I remember we him. Need, we need to have another in memoriam when we finish this book of all the capes <laughs> that we lost along the way. Yeah, sure. Let's let's do that. Uh, Death of the Artist also chooses Chubster. He makes the violence of the Leviathan fight feel personal and real. He's the first person Taylor actually has a chance at saving, and then that choice is ripped away from her. Yeah. Yeah. Ripped away. Yeah. <laughs> Someone- by, by her. <laughs> oh scott so unfair uh stelhex goes with string theory she's a comic relief villain and provides the first moment of hope that scion can be hit using her god driver then he comes right back and kills everybody including her by string theory so this is i I mean this is good because it's that like it's the first time they kind of get organized and try to attack scion and so him just killing everyone is is a good tone setter for how this fight is going to go yeah no it is really great. And string theory ended up mattering a little bit more in Ward. It's true. She's Chris's motivation. Yep. All right. Up next, we have Master Velheim, who chooses Juiced. Juiced? Joust? How do you pronounce that? I don't know. I think Juiced. Juiced from Six Crows by Leigh Bardugo, which yep. is another book I have not read. Yep. But and it again. Was spoiler. I didn't even look at the spoiler because I haven't read it. So sorry. Yeah. Great answer. Uh, Coinage chooses a guy from Rogue One who gets killed to establish one of the main characters as ruthless. Yeah, that is true. I remember that that character. Yep. When I saw Rogue One, at first I thought Coinage was going to talk about the Darth Vader scene, which 
I think is awful. Sorry, <laughs> sorry for disappointing anyone, but I hate that scene. Well, I don't hate it. I don't think it's good. But I agree with Coinage on this. It's definitely not my favorite movie, but I think it was very important to establish who that character was. Yeah, it's pretty pretty effective. Yeah. Professor Crispy picks Grandiose, the cape who Dragon blows up during the Seamurg fight in Madison. His purpose, within and outside the story, is to die right in front of the travelers and make clear to them and us that even if they escape the immediate aftermath of the battle, they'll still be hunted down and killed by the quote-unquote heroes. Yeah. Oh, man, just just remembering that makes me remember how much I love that part of the story. I, I love it too, and, and I just remember I remember being horrified at like the Seamurg, like the plan. Like I was just horrified by the solution to the Seamurg. Like yeah. it feels so awful. And I know I got a lot of pushback at my original like reaction to it. Um and I get I get like the logic of it. It just seems so heartless and terrible. I mean, yeah. I mean I mean it it breaks the people who have to do it, right? Like yeah, is it yeah. I mean I think tag is specifically like basically destroyed as a human being as a result of this so Mm -hmm. uh finally and and then taylor just you know finishes that job off yeah so good job taylor uh wanson (laughs) chooses park jihu the abb conscript who refused to shoot the undersiders and then got liquefied by bakada this establishes bakada as a mentally disturbed individual showing she's not only very blasé about killing in general, but also laughs about it afterwards. His death also definitely changes the tone of the web serial. He's the first person Taylor sees die, and soon after that, she gets her first major injury of many. Yeah, that's another death that I have a very distinct, clear memory of, because I think that is, I think we even talked about at the time, that that was like a, a, a an important statement in the story. Um, there's, there's deaths, people are going to die. Right, and and... And it's done in like a visceral, not very like, oh, this is just a superhero comic book way. Right. Yeah. yeah. It's not like a stormtrooper getting hit by a blaster. Yeah, exactly. Especially after you establish that those have been conscripted slaves. Yeah, that's. <sighs> <laughs> Next week's discussion question. Select one ward character and talk about how acceptance saved them or conversely, how lack of acceptance did not. Yeah. So you can talk about some of the characters that we mentioned in this episode or go crazy and talk about some other ones we haven't talked about. Yeah. This is going to be really fun. I anticipate yeah. getting like 40 answers for this one. Yeah. I'm going to enjoy this one. And that's all we got for you this week on we've got ward. You guys are all part of this show. So feel free to provide us with advice, questions, or thoughts on this week's reading. You can reach out to us via email at gotwormpod at gmail.com or over on our Twitter account. That's at gotwormpod. My personal Twitter for those of you that, want to follow me is at scott daily 85 and matt's is at chubster <laughs> yeah yeah if you're not already subscribed to we've got ward we recommend you do so and never miss an episode hey you, matt uh-huh what was that <laughs> that was me like forgetting how to say that word for a second okay <laughs> i'm not gonna lie <laughs> Uh, you can find us on itunes stitcher youtube google play and pretty much anywhere else in the world that you can listen to podcasts and as always, you can find this and all the other shows we do over at our website, doofmedia.com. That's where you can find the book club, which is meeting again this Friday to discuss Children of Time. It's a really great sci-fi novel. I haven't quite finished it yet, but uh, I'm really, really enjoying uh, And I think I, after we record this, I'm going to go finish it, I think. I'm really enjoying it. Yeah, I, so, I, I finished my second read through recently and I enjoyed it even more the second time. Yeah, so uh, check out doofmedia.com slash book club where you can find all the information about when and where that book club is happening. 
Yeah, uh, that's right. And if you like any of our shows in the network and you want to support them, consider donating to our Patreon account at patreon.com slash doofmedia. Uh, you can donate at the $10 level, $10 a month, and you can get access to the exclusive monthly hangout session with the Doof crew. You know, this last um, weekend, more or less, we did a hangout session where we played a collaborative uh, AI Dungeon 2 game, which was fucking hilarious, if I do say so myself. So much fun. It was so much. I woke up my wife in the next room because I was laughing too hard. I, I was shrieking. If you want to hear me laughing really hard, joke check, check that out. And and uh, you can still you can see that episode if you if you sign up now, even though it already yeah. happened. So anyway, yeah, and and Matt is absolutely right about everything except that that is the five dollar level, not the ten dollar level. What did I say? I thought I said five dollar. You said ten. Yeah. Jesus, Jesus, Scott. It's, it's okay. It is at the five dollar level. It's okay. It's Only been a long night. see that's the thing. You tell them it's ten, and then you bring the price down anyway. Ha ha. Yeah. Um, That's just mean. (laughs) Yeah, it's true. Uh, So as always, make sure you go over to Wildbo's Patreon at patreon.com slash Wildbo and donate to him as well. This is his world. We're just playing in it. This week, special thanks to new Bidoof, uh, Jubidoo, and new Doof Warrior, Brandon F. Really appreciate y'all. Jubidoo, where are you? In the Patreon. If you cannot afford to donate right now, just so you guys know, Matt just like highlighted my next line in the script because he was tired of me singing the Scooby-Doo song. (laughs) (laughs) And if you cannot afford to donate right now, that is absolutely okay. You can instead help us out by heading on over to Apple Podcasts or Stitcher and leaving us a rating and a review. This week, we have a new review by DDev who gives us five stars and says, a great sequel. I started listening to We've Got Worm as a way to experience Worm again without having to reread the whole thing. I quickly fell in love with Matt and Scott's dynamic and insight. I've listened to tons of their content on here and their other shows, and I can say that they have dramatically influenced the way that I think about and engage with stories throughout my life. Wow, that means like a whole lot to me. Wow. Um, This show takes the chance to dive even deeper into a work, and I would say it's as good as a sequel to We've Got Worm as Ward is itself to Worm, which is, again... Wow. Thank yeah. you, D-Dev. That's amazing. Thank yes. You. That's so nice. Oh, my gosh. Right. It's such a good compliment that I'm immediately like, uh, you're you're just saying that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Uh, but thank you. Yes. And that's all we've got for you this week. We'll be back next week where we might be getting dangerously close to finishing Arc 19. Tristan is not going to die, Matt. Stop it. Okay. Stop no putting that dies. into the universe. No, I mean, I mean, Taylor is fine also. So now she's I mean, let's be honest here. I mean, I am. Dead. Dead.